If you have a Bible, please uh, turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. You can find the sermon notes in the app under the tab, Sermon Notes. And we've been in a series over the course of the last couple of weeks about the cross of Jesus Christ. And we're looking at the cross through various lenses. Uh, today, we're going to deal with a very central and important aspect of the cross. But before we get to that, uh, Indy100.com is an independent British web publication uh, that listed the top 50 most annoying things uh, in modern life uh, based on a poll of 2,000 British people, and it was conducted just a few years ago. Here's uh, the top 10 that, that I chose from their list of 50. Uh, see if any of these things annoy you. Number 10. Loud music. Uh, loud music annoys people. Number nine, paying for luggage. Hasn't Southwest just capitalized on something by just saying bags fly free? Like, how smart is that? Number eight, receiving an online order and then having it damaged. Like, seriously, I, I paid for it to get here in time and in one piece and it's damaged. Number seven, forgetting your password. Like, I know I have it written down somewhere. It just needs to be a, it has to have a capital letter, a lowercase letter, a number, an Egyptian hieroglyphics, some papyrus font that is in there. Oh, it's so hard to remember all of them. Number six, when people have a conversation in the doorway. I'm talking to you ushers. <laughs> Where are you? Just hand them a piece of paper, let them walk in. <laughs> when people have a conversation in the door. Number five, potholes. No, no. All of you, silence. If you are not from the Midwest or the northern United States, you have no idea what potholes are, okay? These things are just minor inconveniences. Potholes in the Midwest, they swallow your children whole. And they are annoying. Number four, cars that take up two parking spaces. Where's my Tesla people at? We love you, but only one spot. Number three, being stuck in traffic. Again, Reno, you have nothing to complain about unless you are from Southern California or Chicago or New York. <laughs> being stuck in traffic, although the spaghetti bolt does get pretty nasty sometimes. We're going to move on. <laughs> Number two, slow Wi-Fi. Just want to load that web page. And the number one most annoying thing in modern life, computer or laptop that freezes. Getting the blue screen of death. Have you ever had that annoying moment where the computer or laptop freezes and it goes past just a minor inconvenience and annoyance to where you want to take the thing and in full anger and rage just throw it out the window? Uh, let's, confession is good for the soul. Can I get a raise of hands? I'm, I'm, I'm teased. Wow, you guys really have some issues. Good thing. I'm, I'm glad you are here at church. Uh, but there are a number of things, minor inconveniences in our life that can trigger full-fledged anger in us. 
Anger is a natural human emotion. The Mayo Clinic uh, defines anger as this. Anger is a natural response to, a per- to perceived threats. It causes your body to release adrenaline, your muscles to tighten, your heart rate and blood pressure to increase. Your senses might feel more acute, and your face and your hands flushed. And as I'm probably reading this, my wife is probably saying, Carl, that's exactly what happens to you every time Chicago Bears quarterback Mitch Trubisky throws the ball into double coverage. This is your natural response. Anger is a natural response to perceived threats. We know from the scriptures that human beings, humanity, you and I, we are created in the image of of God. In fact, we are the only creatures that are created in the image of God, which means all of our emotions ultimately find their source derived from God. When we don't ex- while we don't experience all of our emotions the same way that God does, make no mistake, our nature as emotional human beings is grounded in our nature in ma- being made in the image of God. And anger in God's experience, is a righteous resolve for him to correct a wrong. In the scriptures, divine anger is used with the language of the terms, the wrath of God. The the wrath of God is a concept, it runs through the entire storyline of scripture, from Genesis all the way through Revelation. God displays and puts on display his wrath. So today, we're going to journey through two questions and hopefully answer them today. What arouses God's wrath? What makes God angry? And then secondly, what satisfies God's wrath? What allows for his wrath to run its course so that he is no longer angry. Let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, we come before you thanking and praising you for being a God who experiences emotion, a God who has a, a righteous resolve to correct that which is wrong. Help us, O oh God, to listen to you, to understand who you are, and to respond appropriately to your nature and your character. Help us to be a people that are mindful of of who you are and respond to your grace with faith. In Jesus' name, amen. In the Old Testament, the wrath of God, God's anger, is talked about 580 different times. Uh, One scholar, Leon Morris, writes, Uh, There is a consistency in the Old Testament about the wrath of God. It's no capricious passion, but a stern reaction of the divine nature toward evil. It is aroused only and inevitably by sin. Now, there are a number of things that arouses God's anger in the Old Testament, just evil in general, as it talks about in Job chapter 21, verse 20. The innocent shedding of blood arouses God's anger. Adultery arouses God's anger. Violence arouses God's anger. Covetousness, revenge, afflicting orphans and widows in the Old Testament is said to get God angry taking brethren captive, proclaiming, or excuse me, profaning the Sabbath in Nehemiah is talked about as arousing God's anger. But of all of the things that get God kind of riled up, 
the most consistent thing throughout the Old Testament that causes his, to use an anthropomorphism, causes his blood to boil most is being replaced. When people worship anything other than him, as one of my seminary professors would say, the de-godding of God gets him most angry, or to use the biblical language, what really riles him up is idolatry. God doesn't get mad at idolatry because he's like a middle school girl that's envious when the boys are giving attention to the other girls to, and she's somehow insecure. God is jealous when his people worship idols because it leads to emptiness, destruction, despair. God designed his people to worship him and to find his, their fullness in him. And when they replace him to worship something else, it leaves them damaged and broken and destroyed and empty. In fact, uh, during the Exodus, uh, God even commands Pharaoh to let his people go so that they might worship him. They might find their fullness of joy and love and adoration in him and in him alone. If his people are worshiping anything other than him, it will rightly arouse God's anger. We see this in Exodus chapter 32. Uh, in Exodus chapter 32, to bring you up to speed on the story, uh, God frees his people from e the Egyptian slavery, and now they are out in the wilderness, and Moses is up on top of Mount Sinai, and he is receiving the law of God, the words of God. And he is going to tell it to the people at some point, but he's up there for so long that the people begin to grow impatient. They, they're waiting for him to come down, and as they're waiting, they're doubting whether or not Moses is even going to come down at all. And because of this, they're like, we want a substitute God. This God is a little bit too demanding for us. This God is causing us to be patient. He's causing us to wait. Who knows what they might be doing up on that mountain? We don't got time for that. We need another God. So the people go to Aaron, and they, uh, Aaron, and, and they ask Aaron. They, they tell Aaron. They complain to Aaron. Moses is taking so long. We have no idea if he's going to come down even at all. Make for us another God. Make for us something else that is a little bit more manageable. Make for us something that is going to allow us to do kind of whatever we want, whenever we want, who won't force us to be patient, who won't command us to do things that, we, that kind of go against our, our nature. They wanted instant gratification. Give me what I want and give it to me now, Aaron. It isn't just in our digital age of text messaging and social media that people crave immediacy and people crave action to happen now. And when that craving is full-blown full in the human heart, it creates an idol an idol that will permit people to live however they want, an idol crafted after the image of our own natural and sinful lusts. 
not the God who has created all things and who is worthy of praise forever, who may just have a better plan that might cause us to be a little patient. They had just been redeemed from slavery in Egypt. They had just seen the power of God on display to spare them. They had just had a substitute provided for their sins so that they might be freed to worship and serve God. And now God, who's instructing Moses on how they are supposed to live as his people in the promised land, they have to wait for like three minutes for their fast food and they instantly bail on God. They say, that's nope, too much. I want my food in two and a half minutes and I want it now or else I am getting a brand new God. So they give all of the gold over to Aaron. Aaron fashions a golden calf and they begin partying like it's Mardi Gras. Look at these calves. This is our Yahweh. Look at this calf. This calf has saved us. This calf has rescued us. Let's throw a party. No patience, no waiting, no wait on God. God will deliver us. God is leading us. God is the one who is causing our hearts to be patient and wait for, on his timing. None of that. I want it. I want, my sa- I want to satisfy myself, and I want to satisfy myself right now, and this calf is going to give it to me. Praise Yah- this Yahvism calf. God is on the mountain speaking with Moses, and he says to Moses, Moses, I'm going to destroy them. I just saved them, and three minutes later, they are substituting me for another God. Are you kidding me? I'm going to absolutely destroy them. And Moses says, whoa, wait here. Wait here, God. God, God, hold up. And Moses intercedes. Moses says, Moses says, God, you you just saved them from the the Egyptians. If you bring them out into the wilderness and you just level them and destroy them and you start over with just me, all of the Egyptians will laugh at you, God. They'll say he just brought you out to just, they just brought his people out just to destroy them. God, please. And we see, we see in verse we 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 see here in, in verse 13. Moses begs God, turn from your burning anger and relent from the disaster against your people. Don't do it for them. Do it because you promised your for, the for, their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Moses is pleading, God, you, ha- you are a gracious God. God, you promised Abraham, you promised Isaac, you promised Jacob, whose name is Israel. You promised to bring them into the promised land. And I am banking on your goodness and I'm banking on your word. Don't destroy them now. Don't just level them now. Turn. And he's pleading with intercession before God. Then verse 14 tells us exactly what Yahweh does in response to Moses' pleading. Not on the basis of Moses' righteousness, not because the Israelites were such great people, not even because the Israelites repented of their sin. Verse 14, the Lord relented 
from the disaster that he had spoken of in bringing on his people. Even in the midst of his white-hot burning anger, God's character of grace relented from destroying his people because of the intercession of Moses. Now, we don't have time to go through the whole rest of the story, but it doesn't get pretty through the rest of the chapter. But we see here in the glimpse of it, God's white-hot anger burns when his people substitute him, when his people replace him with, an Im- with any other image. Yet God propitiates his own wrath through the intercession of a mediator and he relents from his judgment. When God's wrath is kindled, there's only two results, propitiation or judgment. Those are the only ways that his wrath will be satisfied. Anger today is such a massive problem. We get offended so easily these days, and by so many different things. In fact, when somebody... Their blood pressure rises to the point of actually being angry. These days, it's really difficult even to discern, why is this person even angry? Are you yelling at me because of politics? Are you writing on social media in all caps because of something I personally did to you? Or are you mad about something else? Where is this outrage coming from, and when is it going to end? Our human experience of anger these days is so out of control because we're confused about what we should even be angry about. We have no idea even what we should be angry about that we experience it, and it just kind of overflows from us. And the very fact that when I say the word propitiation and you guys look like a dog in headlights (laughs) is symptomatic of the problem. Propitiation is an uncommon word because we don't know how to deal with our anger in our culture today. And it only makes the problem worse. Propitiation is the appeasing or the absorbing of wrath, of anger. It's the appropriate satisfaction that comes when anger has fully run its course. Propitiation is that moment when justice has been served The heart is fully satisfied in the outcome. The mind has fully accepted the course of events and a new reality has come about that is no longer sourced in anger. The very fact that we don't even know what propitiation is actually fuels and inflames our culture that is full of anger and outrage. But brothers and sisters, before we go any further, it's important to know that that our anger is not like God's anger. God's anger is principled, God's anger is stern, and God's wrath is always in proportion to the offense. And he always carries through his anger with either propitiation, the averting or the appeasing of his wrath, or judgment. That's how he deals with it. Now, some of you might be saying, well, yeah, that was God in the Old Testament. That was the God of wrath and God of judgment, but the New Testament God, he is a God of love. Let's turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says this, 
And the Apostle Paul says, and this is New Testament reality, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because he has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although, verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and images and creeping things. With a simple stroke of the pen, Paul says the New Testament reality is still filled with the wrath of God. The wrath of God is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness, and how do you know that? Idolatry still persists. Human beings are still replacing God with all sorts of images. Well, how is this wrath of God against ungodliness and unrighteousness against humanity displayed? Through idolatry, the exchanging of the glory of the immortal God for images. Well, how, if God is so filled with wrath towards idolatry, how can he let so much of it happen today? Well, Paul answers the question in verse 24. Well, therefore, in light of his wrath, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is forever blessed. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, since they did not did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to what they ought not to be done. Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree, those who practice such, and those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The wrath of God is not seen through powerful displays of judgment like Sodom and Gomorrah today. The wrath of God is seen today in God saying, sure, do whatever you want. Okay, you want your gods, you want your images, you want your lusts, you want your passions, there you go. What is worse for my kids? What is worse for my kids? Ask, ask yourself this question, what's worse for my kids? When I'm right there with them and I tell them, no, don't play with that toy, it's dangerous, we're going to remove it from you, and then they get mad at me? What's worse? That, because, and they, no, I really want that toy, let me have it. And I take it and I say, no, you cannot have that. What is worse, that, or when I say, all right, Cassidy and Judah, do what you want, enjoy, and I back away. That is much worse, leaving them to fend for themselves, not knowing what is right, not knowing what is good, not knowing what is true, that is the wrath of God that is being poured out on our nation, on our world, on, our, on everything right now. It's not God throwing down hellfire and brimstone. It's God saying to the world, fine, do as you please. Watch how this ends. The wrath of God is not seen in fiery displays of judgment right now. It's seen in the proliferation of idols, 
where every man and woman is doing whatever is right in their own eyes, pleasing their, the, pleasing their lust through the proliferation of idols. So how can God's anger towards idolaters be appeased? We'll end here. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. The human condition is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 23. And verse 24. Though are justified, they're made righteous, they're granted right, declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption, that's the purchasing Mac, that is in Christ Jesus, the true mediator. How did God do this? Verse 25 whom God put forward as a propitiation. Propitiation, the appeasement of God's wrath. A propitiation that happens how? By his blood on the cross to be received by faith. God does not propitiate his anger by forcing you to do more stuff. He doesn't propitiate his anger by saying, you need to go and work off your sin. He propitiates his anger by sending his very own son as a gift to die on the cross and shield sinners from his own wrath by dying for them on the cross. And rather than have the wrath of God fall on idolaters like us, we can bow our knees before the cross saying God has provided a propitiation. God has appeased his own wrath. God has carried it forward to the fullness of forgiveness and grace that he no longer looks upon me in judgment and anger because of my sin, but he looks upon me with eyes of grace because of sending his son. Can I get an amen? amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for sending your son to be a propitiation on our behalf. We pray that you would be with us, that you would help us to see you as the, the wrath bearer in your son, sending forward Jesus to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.